Blog Talk Radio. Um, I always miss my cues there, and I hope you guys can hear me. Welcome to In the Closet Objectivist. This is one of your hosts, Dr. Maine Ribbons. Um, missing Corey as much as ever. So um, a couple of weeks ago, right before Ocon, I did a whole recording on education-free speech um, and then realized that I can't upload recordings anymore. So I tried to post a link on the Facebook page, um, which worked really poorly. And I wanted to thank everyone who persisted and actually got a chance to listen to it. Um, For those of you who haven't, I'm going to recapitulate here live at this very strange hour um, because that's when I can do it. Um, So I got a lot to say and only 30 minutes to say it. So we are going to hit the ground running right now. So um, this topic came up for me because I had read Steve Simpson's first article um, on Ayn Rand's, sorry, the Ayn Rand Institute's new blog called New Ideal. Um, It's called Campus Speech, Why Reason When I Can Riot. And um, as you'll see, I'm going to quote a couple of passages from it. Um, And um, Seasonson makes the connection between today's education and free speech, but it wasn't clear to me what about education makes free speech so important to today's students. Um, So I dug through some of the articles he, you know, and resources he referenced in his article, um, and I'm going to share a few of them with you and, and try to flesh out that connection a little bit. So... Quoting from um, Mr. Simpson's article published originally April 2nd, 2018, quote, what a difference a year, and this is sort of in the middle of the um, article, bear with me here, quote, what a difference a year and a half makes. At the beginning of 2017, the use of force to shut down talks and even attack speakers at college campuses was still relatively rare. Today, it is starting to seem like the new normal, unquote. And a little bit further down, quote, if it didn't seem like things could get much worse, we had yet to see the full takeover of campus by angry students. What happened, excuse me, that happened in May at Evergreen State College in Washington after biology professor Brett Weinstein opposed the school's new day of absence in which white students were encouraged to leave campus for a day. Weinstein, a self-described progressive, approved of the original day of absence in which minority students willingly left campus as a, quote, call to consciousness, unquote, as he put it. But he saw the new version as a form of intimidation. Weinstein's approval led students first to demand his resignation and then to block him from teaching his class. When he moved his class off campus, he received threats, prompting campus police to tell him it was not safe for him to return. Students later took over the library and several administrative offices. Incidents like these have continued since then. In the fall of 2017, a group of students at William & Mary took over the stage during a talk by ACLU lawyer at Rutgers University Students shouted down a panel discussion on multiculturalism. More recently, students disrupted a talk by Christina Hoff Summers at Lewis and Clark Law School, and a talk featuring ARI's Jerome Brooke at King's College in London was disrupted by members of Antifa, who also injured two police officers. 
unquote, and a little bit further down in the article, quote, the universities, Rand argued, are, were teaching the very ideas that led students to attack and occupy them. In the 1960s, the primary philosophical vehicles for these ideas were logical positivism and existentialism. Today, they are postmodernism and multiculturalism. But the common core is the same. In Rand's words, it is the epistemological agnosticism of valid irrationalism, ethical subjectivism. For decades, students have been taught that reason and the mind are impotent, emotions are supreme, and values are a product of one's cultural background or genetic lineage, end of quote. Now, as I said, it wasn't obvious to me what, you know, what ideas specifically in postmodernism or multiculturalism generally in education um, were antithetical to free speech, um, or at least antithetical to a positive view of free speech. Um, so, you know, especially since, you know, on social media, people are pretty free with what they say. Um, you know, I, I kind of thought that would lead to insensitivity. I mean, if you're a fan of Jimmy Kimmel's mean tweet, if you think they're funny, and honestly, some of them are pretty clever, um, you'd think that alone would make you an unqualified defender of free speech. But as we've seen above, not, not so. So um, one of the articles Steve Simpson referenced um, was um, by Ayn Rand titled The Student Rebellion at Columbia University. It's actually a radio broadcast, and, and um, I will link to it in the program notes. You can hear it for yourself. In it, Rand talks about how rioting students took over campus buildings um, were met with, at most, slaps on the wrist. Um, and from this, I gleaned that you know, there were all, even in the best possible society with the best possible education, there will always be nihilists and would be thugs. But to appease them is to divorce them from the painful metaphysical consequences of their criminal actions. Um, the result is an object lesson violence gets you what you want. Another reference in Steve Simpson's article is the recording Ayn Rand interviewed on the value of education. Here, Rand insists that students not be subjected to arbitrary assertions, but be presented with reasons that leverage the student's existing context of knowledge. Um, what the heck am I talking about there? Well, so, for instance, you could lay out the most beautiful proof on how to find the volume of a sphere using um, multivariable calculus. But if you're giving that proof to kindergartners, that's not really leveraging their context of knowledge, right? And it's not going to be of any use to them. Um, so you you can't just give. I mean, that amounts to an arbitrary assertion when you when you do something like that. But you also can't just say, oh, um, I don't know, two plus two is four, right? Like that's that's also, there's, there's, it's a floating abstraction, right? Like that's not meaningful in their context, you know. Um, so, um, so when she's talking about insisting on using proofs to develop knowledge in students um, rather than arbitrary assertions, um, that kind of supports an idea I've proposed on this show before. Um, when arbitrary assertions are presented as quote-unquote facts, 
with glaring omissions or falsehoods and no possibility of evaluating or integrating with other facts, then knowledge isn't this self-edifying structure where new facts support an even greater understanding. Um, instead, you know, what passes for knowledge in the student's mind is a bunch of floating abstractions that pair no relation to each other or to reality. So I, I will quote to that um, recording as well in the notes um, on Blog Talk Radio. So the last reference I'm going to talk about um, was the one I found most, most helpful and um, most heartbreaking, and it's, it's Ayn Rand's The Comprachicos, which is published in the New Left, the Anti-Industrial Revolution in 1970. Um, the article opens with this passage from Victor Hugo's The Man Who Laughed. Um, I haven't read it yet, and you're about to find out why I'm so reticent to do so. And I, I, I will make myself do it at some point, but not any point soon. Um, I, I'm also not going to read it for you um, for reasons you'll understand in just a moment. The term comprachicos is a portmanteau of the Spanish words for child buyer. Um, and so in the Middle Ages, there's, there are these people who took it upon themselves to take toddlers, I, I think they purchased them, um, purposefully disfigure these small children and then sell them to royalty as jesters. They also did this in China um, where they put these very small children whose, whose bones were um, relatively malleable um, and they put them in these weirdly shaped glass jars where, like, the head and the feet would stick out, but everything else was sort of compressed in this glass jar. And the kids would spend years in there until they were permanently disfigured, and then they'd break the jars, and um, these children would have to go on as best they could, having been disfigured. Um, so that's a pretty horrifying image. I really don't have words atrocious enough to describe that, um, which is probably why Rand used the image um, to describe progressive educators as, quote, comprachicos of the mind, um, taking young minds and irrevocably disabling their ability to think. So I'm going to quote several passages from this. Uh, bear with me. Um, like I said, they're, they're really heartbreaking, but for me, I found them really illuminating and connecting. Um, sorry, it's really upsetting. Um, connecting the issue of education and free speech. So here we go, quoting from the article. Quote, if in two years of adult life, men could learn as much as an infant learns in his first two years, they would have the capacity of a genius to focus his eyes, which is not innate but an acquired skill, to perceive the things around him by integrating his sensations into percepts, which is not innate but an innate skill, to coordinate his muscles for the task of crawling, then standing upright, then walking, and ultimately to grasp the process of concept formation and learn to speak. These are some of the infant's tasks and achievements whose magnitude is not equal by most men in the rest of their lives, end quote. I just want to pause for a second to say that I love that description. Um, 
really renews my appreciation for how hard young children work, even if we don't remember our own development. Um, and yet a lot of people hold this attitude that investing in very early education is an idiotic waste of money. Rand describes their preference going forward in the article. I'm, I'm going to quote a lot, um, but again, I, I think this will be really helpful in, in connecting today's education, free inquiry, and free speech. So again, quoting from the article, quote, at the age of three, when his mind is almost as plastic as his bones, when his need and desire to know are more intense than they will ever be again, a child is delivered by progressive nursery schools into the midst of a pack of children as helplessly ignorant as himself. He is not merely left without cognitive guidance. He is actively discouraged and prevented from pursuing cognitive tasks. He wants to learn. He is told to play. Why? No answer is given. He is made to understand by the emotional vibrations permeating the atmosphere of the place, by every crude or subtle means available to the adults whom he cannot understand, that the most important thing in this peculiar world is not to know, but to get along with the pack. Why? No answer is given. He does not know what to do. He is told to do anything he feels like. He picks up a toy. It is snatched away from him by another child. He is told he must learn to share. Why? No answer is given. He sits alone in a corner. He is told he must join the others. Why? No answer is given. End of quote. And continuing a little further, quote, a small child is mildly curious about but not greatly interested in other children his own age. In daily association, they merely bewilder him. He is not seeking equals, equals the cognitive superiors, people who know. Observe that young children prefer the company of older children or of adults, that they hero worship and try to emulate an older brother or sister. A child needs to reach a certain development, a sense of his own identity, before he can enjoy the company of his peers. But he is thrown into their midst and told to adjust. Adjust to what? To anything. To cruelty, to injustice, to blindness, to silliness, to pretentiousness, to thumbs, to mockery, to treachery, to lies, to incomprehensible demands, to unwanted favors, to nagging affections, to unprovoked hostilities, and to the overwhelming overpowering presence of whim as the ruler of everything, end of quote. And continuing a little further, quote, he learns that regardless of what he does, whether his action is right or wrong, honest or dishonest, sensible or senseless, if the pack disapproves, he is wrong and his desire is frustrated. If the pack proves, then anything goes. Thus, the embryo of his concept of morality shrivels before it is born. He learns that it is no use starting a lengthy project of his own, such as building a castle out of boxes. It will be taken over or destroyed by others. He learns that anything he wants must be grabbed today, since there is no way of telling what the pack will decide tomorrow. Thus, his groping sense of time continuity of the future's reality is stunted, shrinking his awareness and concern to the range of the immediate moment. He is able and motivated to perceive the present. He is unable and unmotivated to retain the past or to project the future, end of quote. And continuing further, quote, what became of his potential intelligence? Every precondition of its use has been stunted. Every prop supporting his mind has been cut. He has no self-confidence, no concept of self, no sense of morality, no sense of time continuity, no ability to project the future, no ability to grasp, 
to integrate or to apply abstractions, no firm distinction between existence and consciousness, no values, with the mechanism of repression paralyzing his evaluative capacity, end of quote. Oh, that, that just gives me chills. Um, excuse me. Continuing, quote, is the damage done by a child's mind, excuse me, is the damage done to a child's mind by a progressive nursery school irreparable? Scientific evidence indicates that it is in at least one respect. The time wasted in delaying a child's cognitive development cannot be made up. The latest research on the subject shows that a child whose early cognitive training has been neglected will never catch up in the intellectual progress with a properly trained child of approximately the same intelligence, as far as this last can be estimated. Thus, all the graduates of a progressive nursery school are robbed of their full potential, and their further development is impeded, slowed down, and made much harder. End of quote. And continuing further, quote, the modern educators, the compachicos of the mind, are prepared for the second stage of their task, to indoctrinate the children with the kinds of ideas that will make their intellectual recovery unlikely, if not impossible, and to do it by the kind of method that continues and reinforces the conditioning begun in the nursery school. The program is devised to stunt the minds of those who manage to survive the first stage with some remnant of their rational capacity, and to cripple those who were fortunate enough not to be sent to a progressive nursery. In Comportico terms, this program means to keep tearing the scabs off the wounds left by the original surgery and to keep infecting the wounds until the child's mind and spirit are broken. To Santa mind means to arrest its conceptual development, its power to use abstractions, and to keep it concrete bound perceptual method of functioning. John Dewey, the father of modern education, including the press of nursery schools, opposed the teaching of theoretical, i.e. conceptual knowledge, and demanded that it be replaced by concrete, practical action in the form of class projects, which would develop the student's social spirit. Internal quotes, the mere absorbing of facts and truth, he wrote, is so exclusively individual an affair that it tends very naturally to pass into selfishness. There is no obvious social motive for the acquirement of mere learning. There is no clear social gain in success thereat. End of internal quotes. And this is from John Dewey, The School and Society, Chicago, the University of Chicago Press, 1956, page 15. This much is true. Is, again, this is ran now. This much is true. The perception of reality, the learning of facts, and the ability to distinguish truth from falsehood are exclusively individual capacities. The mind is an exclusively individual affair. There is no such thing as a collective brain. And intellectual integrity, the refusal to sacrifice one's mind and one's knowledge of the truth to any social pressures is a profoundly and properly selfish attitude, end of quote. I, I just want to interrupt the flow here a little bit to flesh out that idea because I think when people talk about like a collective brain or a quorum or whatever, um, it's, not, it's not a crazy idea, right? I mean, people will sit together and, um, 
and brainstorm, for example, and come up with a new idea. Um, so why is it that Ayn Rand says there's no such thing as a collective brain? Um, well, I, I mean, I, the, the analogy I found really helpful was when she talked about how you can't digest for another person's stomach, right? You know, it, it, food has to go in one way and come out the other. I mean, like, it, <laughs> and so by the same token, you can't think for another person. You know, I, I did a lot of teaching. I have done a lot of teaching. And, um, you know, there, there were definitely times when I wished I could just, like, implant what I knew and it integrated into the minds of my students. But it just can't be done, right? Like, you know, either their mind grasps it or it doesn't, and I can't do their thinking for them. Indeed, nobody can do anybody's thinking. You can't think someone into knowledge. Um, they can repeat things, but that doesn't count as knowledge, right? They, they have to, you know, they have to tie it to the other things that they know in order to be able to use it and have it, you know, honestly count as knowledge. So I, I hope that analogy of, like, there, there's no such thing as a collective stomach, ergo there's no such thing as a collective brain is, is helpful. Yes, you can learn things from other people. Um, they can stimulate your creativity with new knowledge, but at the end of the day, it's some one person's idea. And, you know, you can, you can combine individual ideas. Um, you know, there's lots of parts that go into a sewing machine, but someone had to think of that machine's function. So I, I'm digressing quite a bit. I'm going to return to the article. Um, but I hope that that analogy was helpful. Okay. Back to the article. Um, quote, the goal of modern education is to stunt, stifle, and destroy the student's capacity to develop such an attitude, that is a, a selfish attitude, as well as a, it's, excuse me, as well as its conceptual and psychopathological preconditions. There are two different methods of learning, by memorizing and by understanding. The first belongs primarily to the perceptual level of a human consciousness, the second of the conceptual. The first is achieved by means of repetition and concrete bound associations, a process in which one sensory concrete leads automatically to another with no regard to content or meaning. The best illustration of this process is a song which was popular some 20 years ago called Marzi Dope. I don't know what that song is. Um, try to recall some poem you had to memorize in grade school. You will find that you can recall it only if you recite the sounds automatically by the Marzi Dotes method. If you focus on the meaning, the memory vanishes. This is a form of learn, excuse me, this form of learning is shared by man with higher animals. And animal training, all, excuse me, all animal training consists of making the animal memorize a series of actions by repetition and association, end of quote. And just to, so for a, a bit of a more modern example of the Marzi Dose method, think about um, if someone asks you what letter comes after L, um, you, most of us have to go, okay, A, B, C, D, E, F, G. I mean, so it's the same. That's how we memorize the alphabet, right, is with the, with the song. Um, so I, I think that's kind of what Ayn Rand's getting to. Um, Okay, so continuing with the article, quote, 
the Kung Fu Chico technique starts, um, sorry, I've got just about five minutes. The Kung Fu Chico technique starts at the base. The child's great achievement is learning to speak, to, in learning to speak is undercut and all but nullified by the method used to teach him to read. The look-same method substitutes the concrete by memorization of the visual shapes of the words for the phonetic method which taught a child to treat letters and sounds as abstractions. The senseless memorization of such a vast amount of sensory material places an abnormal strain on a child's mental capacity, a burden that cannot be fully retained, integrated, or automatized. The result is a widespread reading neurosis, the inability to learn to read among children, including many of above average intelligence, a neurosis that did not exist prior to the introduction of the look-say method. If the enlightenment and welfare of children were the modern educator's goal, the incidence of, of that neurosis would have made them check and revise their educational theories. It has not. And continuing a little further, quote, material taught in one class has no relation to the frequency and frequently contradicts the material taught in another. The cure introduced by the modern educators is worse than the disease. It consists in the following procedure. A theme is picked at random for a given period of time during which every teacher presents his subject in relation to that theme without context or earlier preparation. For instance, if the theme is shoes, the teacher of physics discusses the machinery required to make shoes. The teacher of chemistry discusses the tanning of leather. leather. The teacher of economics discusses the production and consumption of shoes. The teacher of mathematics sees problems in calculating the cost of shoes. And the teacher of English reads stories involving shoes or the plight of the barefoot, and so on. End of quote. And continue further quote. The secret of his psychopistemology, which baffles those who deal with him, lies in the fact that as an adult he has to use concepts, but he uses concepts in a child's perceptual method. He uses them as concrete as the immediately given without context, definitions, integrations, or specific reference. He his only context is the immediate moment. To what, then, do his concepts refer? To a foggy mixture of partial knowledge, memorized responses, habitual associations, his audience's reactions, and his own feelings, which represent the context of his mind at that particular moment. On the next day or occasion, the same concepts were referred to different things according to the changes in his mood in the immediate circumstances. He seems able to understand and discuss or in a period to understand the discussion or a rational argument, sometimes even on an abstract theoretical level. He is able to participate to agree or disagree after what appears to be a critical examination of the issues. But the next time one meets him, the conclusions he reached are gone from his mind as if the discussion had never occurred, even though he remembers it. He remembers the event, i.e. the discussion, not its intellectual content. And now circling back to Steve Simpson's article, I'm going to quote one more time. Quote, when these ideas are put into practice, the result is violence and ultimately censorship. If people accept the idea that reason is useless, as the postmodernists, multiculturalists, and many other thinkers of today teach, then all they have left to guide them is emotion. When their emotions conflict, when, for example, one group objects to the criticism of, from another, how are they to resolve their differences, end of quote. And speaking for myself, the answer, of course, is violence. For a mind that's unable to integrate facts and no reality, speech isn't something you can validate by reference to things in reality. 
For example, speech doesn't amount to, if you say 2 plus 2 is 5, I can hand you two books and then two more books and show you that you have four books, not five. Instead, speech amounts to, I have this ineffable emotion, I demand that you do something about it. In the latter case, who would want others to speak freely? So um, I hope that idea, um, you know, that if ideas, that if ideas, oh God, that startled me. <laughs> um, that if ideas don't, don't matter and don't connect to each other and there's really therefore no way of um, validating things objectively in reality, speech is actually threatening. And I think it makes a lot more sense to me now why given our current education, free speech is, is a threat rather than a value to a lot of students. So with that, I am going to conclude. Thank you guys again so much for your patience. Find us on, of course, Blog Talk, Facebook. Um, tune in, iTunes, Stitcher. I am probably forgetting because I'm terrible at the housekeeping on this show. Um, check us out on Patreon, show Corey your love with, with some dollars. Um, and with that, I'll sign off. Missy Corey, cheers to reason.